0: Father, thank you for this chance to study this precious book of First John. We thank you for giving us this book through John. We thank you for the gift that John himself has been to the church. Thank you for the way that you used him to uh, to communicate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, to bring correction and encouragement to churches, and to give us a glimpse into the future with the book of Revelation. Lord, well, thank you so much for that man. Thank you that you chose him as your follower, and you've used him in mighty ways. Lord, thank you for speaking through him so that your words could be recorded for us in the book of 1 John, and we pray that over these next three months that you would use these Spirit-inspired words to shape us as individuals, as families, and as a church. So we give ourselves to you, we submit ourselves to the authority of your word, and we ask you to shape us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So like I said, we're going to be doing three months in the book of First John. If you would like to get some extra credit, there are some baggies on the back table there with eight short memory verses from the book of First John. If you pick one of these up, the first one in it is 1 John 1, 8, 9, which is something that is already familiar to many of you because I repeat it often from this stage. But it's the first of the memory verses, and it's going to be covered in next week's sermon, and so you can get ahead on that. There are... Uh, I believe nine packages back there and one up here, Um, memorizing passages of Scripture is a great way to not only understand it, but to get it deep down inside of you. And uh, these are eight short passages out of this book for this summer that if you will commit to memorizing those, uh, it will make a difference for you, not only this summer, but for the rest of your life, as God can then bring those memories back in the times that you need it most. Alright, so, book of First John, a whopping five chapters long. This book was written by the Apostle John. He's one of the twelve originally chosen by Jesus to be his close companions, to walk hundreds and th- maybe thousands of miles back and forth inside of Israel and outside of Israel, teaching, healing proclaiming the truth, they got to see it all. And John had a front row seat. John was not only one of the first twelve, he was one of the inner three. He was one of the first ones called. He's also the, the, the apostle that lived the longest. So after the death of Jesus... Judas, one of the original 12, he killed himself, and then he was replaced with Matthias. And of those 12 post-resurrection apostles, all of them except John died as a martyr. They gave their lives literally because of their proclamation that Jesus was the Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Now, Now, John died of old age, not because he was a coward and recanted his faith, but because God had a specific plan for him. Rather than uh, dying in a terrible, excruciating way like many of the other apostles did, he lived out the last years of his life (coughs) alone in exile on an island in the Mediterranean. And while in exile, God used him to write for us the book of Revelation. So John is the last... Of the living apostles after the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, and he's one of the first ones called. Let's look at that calling right now. John is hanging out with his brother and uh, his two buddies, Peter and Andrew. They were fishing. Jesus came along, and this is what happened. This is Matthew 4 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. In the book of Matthew, that's where we first see John jump into action. He's with his brother, he's with his dad, he's with his two fishing buddies. Jesus says, you, come follow me. He drops everything, walks away from the business, walks away from his dad, and follows Jesus. Just amazing. He was probably pretty young. He might have been a teenager, maybe even a 15-year-old at that point. And for him to just leave all of what was mapped out for his life... And choose to follow the stranger is just amazing. Later in Jesus' ministry, uh, Peter, James, and John, that inner three, the three amigos, are invited by Jesus up onto a mountain. And they get to see something that the other disciples don't get to see. This is in Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took, took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured, that means his appearance changed before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, who had died hundreds of years before, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came, touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This astounding moment in the life of Jesus was witnessed by only three guys. And John, our author for this summer series, is one of those guys. Peter, James, and John. Hmm. What a privilege. Not only was John, though, part of the inner three, but Jesus actually singled out John as his best buddy. John, he got to see things in Jesus' ministry. He got to hear things from Jesus that nobody else did. He got to be close to Jesus in a a deep, like best buddies kind of way. When John talks about himself, either in the Gospel of John, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or in the first and second and third John, the letters of John, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple or the one whom Jesus loved. Now, he's not, he's not saying that in a way to brag. He's saying that really in a way of just amazement, like, Jesus knew who I was, and yet he loved me. And yeah, he loves everybody, but somehow he chose me as a special buddy. We see an example of this in John 13, 23, where the disciples are in the upper room for that last supper, and John himself writes, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. He's talking about himself there. He never uses his name to describe himself when he's writing. He never says, I, or we. He just the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was the only male disciple at the crucifixion. Everybody else, even brave Peter, ran and hid. And so, in those last few moments when Jesus is breathing his last, saying his last, and about to give up his spirit to the Father, John and a small group of women are below the cross, looking up, tears streaming down their eyes, hearts breaking. And in that moment, Jesus gives John a special task that he gave nobody else. In John 19, 26 and 27, we see this. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, again talking about John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus is about to die. Joseph, the... we would say adoptive father of Jesus, not biologically Jesus' father, but raised him as a father. Joseph has died long before this. Mary, a widow, is about to lose her oldest son, whose responsibility would be to care for her. And so in that moment, in excruciating pain, Jesus thinks not of himself, he thinks of his mom, and makes sure that she's taken care of and he chooses John to be the one to care for. Him. Now John readily took on this responsibility of caring for Mary and probably for the next couple decades it it kind of took him out of commission like he he had to take care of her he had to he had to provide for her he had to make sure that she was safe and so for the, the role that John played in Jesus' three years of ministry, and the role that he plays by writing five books of the New Testament, for a while, John is not a particularly big player in the history of the church, and I think it's because he's taking care of Mary. But then later in life, John would move to the city of Ephesus, we'll show this on a map, city of Ephesus in what is today Turkey, and that would serve as a home base for the rest of his life. He would minister to the churches in and around that area as an overseer of this network of churches. He would write the letters that become 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He would write the gospel that we call the gospel of John. And from there, he would be exiled to the island of Patmos, where he would write Revelation. John, in Ephesus, writing what we call the book of John, closes it out this way as he looks back on those three years with his beloved best friend he says this in john 12 and john twenty one twenty five. now there are also many other things that jesus did were every one of them to be written i suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written now this is typical john language he's poetic he's flowery uh he's he's looking back um sentimentally at that time with Jesus. And he says, look, I've recorded for you 21 chapters of what Jesus did and said, and yet I didn't even scratch the surface. He gives us, though, that glimpse into the past. And then years later, as a very old man living alone on an island, he would give us a glimpse into the future. And in chapter 22 of Revelation he would say this speaking about Jesus he says he who testifies to these things all the stuff that he's just written says surely i am coming soon and then john responds amen come lord jesus and the grace of the lord jesus be with all amen that's the last we hear from john somewhere in between writing the gospel of john and writing the revelation He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, three letters. The first one we're studying this summer is only five chapters long. You could sit down, read it in probably 15, 20 minutes, and then while you're at it, you might as well read 2nd and 3rd John because they're like 15 and 13 verses long and you just blast through them and feel like you've accomplished a great act because you got three done in just a little more time than it would take to do one. We're going to look now at 1st John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That's our whole text for today, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. If you're looking in your Bible, they're near the back, almost to the Revelation, and if you're looking at a pew Bible, it's on page 1021. As you're finding that, let me just remind you what I'm about to do. Here, our main form of preaching is what is referred to as expository preaching. We try to expose what the text says. We don't try to make up what the text says. We don't take our ideas and then go looking for Bible passages in order to support those ideas. We want to take a particular passage and we want to ask some questions. What does the text say? What does the text mean? And why does it matter? So that's what we're going to do now, which is the first four verses of 1 John, and this will get us into our summer series. Here it is, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Listen closely. It's a little hard to take in. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, especially if you're not in the habit of reading the Bible, and these words are a little foreign to you, those four verses might have just gone right over the top of your head. John tends to write in such a way that our modern ears and minds have a hard time processing it. He tends to write in circles. He goes around and around. And it's, it's hard for us to follow it. You may notice that he doesn't even start this letter like a normal letter would be started. He doesn't say, this is John writing to these people. He just jumps right into it. Now, he's going to end the letter the same way. No salutation, just a bold, clear statement at the end and then cut it off. But the thing that makes these four verses really stand out in my mind is the fact that they're so hard to understand when you first read them. Part of that is because though he's, he's writing in a different culture, we said he was living in Ephesus, he's writing a different language, a different culture, a different time. He's writing to people who tend to hear and speak and understand stories and written spoken words in different ways than we do. And the way that he writes is more flowery and poetic than much of the New Testament. And so our modern ears hear this and we think, what in the world is going on? What is he saying? He's essentially saying he wants the original readers and he wants us to believe the right things and to live the right way. That's really the point. Believe the right things and live the right way. He says this out of love, which we will see in just a minute. But if you're like me, you're thinking, man, John, why didn't you just say it? Believe the right things. Live the right way. Why all these Fancy words and spinning around. It's kind of like a DNA molecule. If you've got a double helix of DNA and it was it's like spinning in space in front of you, and you were looking at it from the side, you would see alternating storylines as it spins around. It goes to this and then it goes to this and then it goes to this and it goes to this. But for John, that spinning double helix, those two storylines, they're really just one storyline and the way that he loops back to it over and over again, in his mind, It's a single thing. For us, in order for these four verses to make more sense, it would actually help if we took them out of order. Because the main point of the first three verses is in verse 2. And verse 1 is modifying verse 2. And verse 3 is modifying verse 2. And so if we switch up the order, it actually makes more sense to us. So I've done that. I've shrunk it down so it could be on one slide for you. This is 2, then 1, then 3. Hopefully that makes a little more sense. Jesus is saying, or John is saying that Jesus came for real in the flesh in order to provide us eternal life. There's a funny word in there, manifest, that means make visible, not as in Like there's nothing and we create something out of nothing, poof, there it is. But no, something has existed, but we can't see it or our eyes aren't comprehending it or our brains aren't able to figure it out. And if it's made manifest, it becomes clear to us. A couple of times in these first few verses, John talks about Jesus that way. He says that Jesus, the life, the light was made manifest. He talked about how we've touched, we've seen, we've heard him. He says that multiple times in the beginning of 1 John. Why is he talking about these things? Why is he saying that Jesus is being made manifest? Why is he talking about being able to see and hear and touch him? Well, it's because John wants to make sure that you and I understand that Jesus really came in the flesh. Why is he concerned about that? Why does he start off the letter that way? It's because just like through all of Christian history, there were false teachers infiltrating his land around Ephesus, teaching things that were not true. One of those uh, false teachings is what became known as Gnosticism. And it says that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. That he was just appearing, he was an apparition, he was like a ghost. But he wasn't in the flesh. The word Gnosticism is this. The belief that secret knowledge holds the key to spiritual life and that the material world is bad, but the spiritual world is good. Those are the main ideas of Gnosticism. You can see how the way Gnosticism is spelled with the G in there. It comes from the the Greek word gnosis, which is just the word knowledge. So we could refer to those who follow Gnosticism as the "gnowers" of things. They think they have secret, special knowledge. Not that they've gotten from the word of God, but that they've received through somebody else who got the secret knowledge and passed it on to them. It's like this this special, exclusive club where I've got the secret knowledge and I'm gonna share it with you. And the knowledge is the thing. The, The stuff that you know in your mind and in your heart, that's the main important thing. And your body doesn't matter. In fact, your body... The whole material world is bad. Matter is bad. It's only the spirit that matters. Ah, get it? Okay. All right. This, uh, this idea that the whole world, uh, that the, the matter of the world is bad and that the spirit is good works, a, works itself out in a couple ways. And John wants to address both of these in the book of John first way it works itself out is in the idea of asceticism, which is a funny word. We don't talk about it, but it's the idea of uh, denying your body. Not necessarily denying that it exists, but den- denying what it needs. Right? So um, the, the world over, throughout the history of Christianity, there have been seasons and locations where asceticism has taken root. And sometimes it, it takes form of like a, um, a monk or a nun who like, starves themselves and keeps themselves in their little room all the time and doesn't talk to anybody. It's because like, if I can just deny the body of, of communication with others and the food that I need or the sleep that I need, I'm going to stay up for days on end. If I can deny the body, I'll become more spiritual. Martin Luther bought into that idea before he became a Christian. When he was a monk, he used to beat himself. He'd take this, this uh, multi-corded whip and he'd, he'd whip himself in the back trying to punish his evil body and, and dry, drive out the evilness that his body brought to his spirit. Another guy back in the, in the 300s was named St. Simeon Stylitus. He was a Syrian ascetic saint. So St. Simeon Stylitis was a Syrian ascetic saint. Got it? All right. He lived for 37 years on top of a wooden platform on top of a pillar in Aleppo, in what we would now call Syria. Why? In order to deny his flesh, to to beat down his flesh, to, to try to neglect and destroy his flesh because the flesh was bad and the spirit is good. Now, interestingly, this idea of asceticism and Gnosticism is not unique to Christianity. This idea that the body is bad, matter is bad, spirit is good, we see it in all kinds of religions. So in, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Islam, in multiple religions around the world, we see that. You guys maybe have a picture in your mind like this next one of the fat, happy Buddha. Now, when the, the guy who was the first Buddha, his name was Siddhartha, when he was trying to reach enlightenment, he was trying to defeat what he thought was e- the evil body in order to achieve spiritual enlightenment, he starved himself to the point where he reportedly was living on one grain of rice each day. And when he reached for his belly button, he would put his hand around his spinal cord. This next picture is a visual representation of how he starved himself nearly to death as a young man seeking enlightenment because the matter, the physical stuff was bad and the spirit was good. So that's one way that the false teaching of Gnosticism plays itself out in the world. The other way is the complete opposite, licentiousness. Instead of denying the body, it's indulging the body. Because if the body doesn't matter, only the spirit matters, then whatever you do in the body doesn't matter. And you might as well do whatever makes you feel good right now. So whatever it is, whether it's eating this or or being with this person or lying and stealing and cheating to get ahead, whatever it is, it doesn't matter anyway, so live it up. Same false teaching, Gnosticism, opposite directions. John knows that these two traps are currently ensnaring his beloved people in and around Ephesus. And he knows that they try to ensnare us too. Maybe you've said or you've heard someone in the church say something like this, I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, I'll never be perfect, so why even try... Jesus has forgiven all of my sin, and so it doesn't matter if I continue sinning in this particular way. If you haven't heard somebody say it, you've probably at least thought it to yourself. I want to do this. I know I'm not supposed to, but Jesus has forgiven me, and so it doesn't matter anyway. That is Gnosticism. Throughout the book of 1 John, John will have very strong words for those of us who have tried to fool ourselves with that. That includes me. It includes probably all of you. All right. What I'd like to do now is go back and read through the first three verses. And Matthew, we're going to have to skip to the one that has the bolded letters in it, okay? I want to read through the first three verses, and I want you guys to take note and try to remember the bolded words because we're going to see those again. So, Familiar words now, in the original order. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it, proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. All right, so you got those bold ones stuck in your head. Now, we're going to read some of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Same guy writing, now not a letter to churches, but his his uh, version of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he says this in John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And if we skip down to verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full grace and truth. Now, John's a beautiful writer. He can put words together in beautiful ways. But the point he's trying to make in both John 1 and 1 John 1 is that Jesus really is the Son of God who really did take on flesh. He is the Word, but He's not just Word. He's not just idea. He's God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, in flesh. Jesus never sinned. He was never tainted by sin. And yet He lived in a body. Therefore, the Gnostic idea that matter is bad is blown out of the water. If Jesus came in the flesh, we cannot say matter is bad and only spirit is good. Now, these first few verses are high on challenge. He just jumps right in, saying, this is where you guys are being tempted to think wrong things. But for as confrontational as those first few sentences are, 1 John He he swings back the pendulum into invitation. He's going to do this throughout the whole letter, sometimes within the same verse even, challenge to invitation, to challenge to invitation. And as he swings back to invitation, he wants to talk about fellowship. We have a room downstairs called the Fellowship Hall. We talk about fellowship with each other, we get together and we, we talk with each other on Sundays. We, we, how are you doing? You know, how was your week? Those kind of things. What John is talking about with fellowship is something much deeper than that. A uniting together, a communing together as brothers and sisters in Christ where we're sharing our lives with each other, where we're trusting each other. That's the kind of fellowship that he's talking about. Here's what he says in verse 3 again. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, okay, so Jesus came in the flesh. We saw it, we heard it, we believe it, we've seen him, we've touched him, we've watched it, all of that. This we proclaim so that you too, the original readers and us, may have fellowship with us. So not just John, but the other Ephesian elders There, he says that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see how the the vertical and horizontal relationships are linked here. We have fellowship with God, and we have fellowship with each other, and they are necessarily linked to each other. You can't separate them. John wants us to believe the right things and live the right way so that we will be in fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. Why do the beliefs matter? Why isn't it just live the right way with each other and you'll be in fellowship with each other? Why do beliefs matter? Well, if I say that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that he was just spirit, he was just an apparition, that he he just appeared to be on earth and he really wasn't because matter is bad and spirit is good and, and, and the spirit couldn't be corrupted by matter. And you say, like the Bible does, no, Jesus really did come in the flesh. He became one of us in order to save us. He was not corrupted by matter. Instead, he brought perfection to matter. If you say that and I say the other thing, We're not talking about the same Jesus. We're not playing on the same team. And we have no fellowship with each other because you have fellowship with God. But I don't. My wrong belief has broken my fellowship with God. And if the vertical and the horizontal are linked, you and I can't have true fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ if I'm not a brother in Christ. That's why John cares so much about this. Out of love for his first audience, and out of love for us, he wants fellowship, horizontal and vertical, to be the way that God designed it to be. His motivation is love. That is my motivation for this summer series also. I love you guys. Last night, I was up for almost two hours in the middle of the night praying for you guys. Just couldn't stop. Couldn't go back to sleep. I want God to use this summer series to shape us so that our fellowship with each other and our fellowship with God grow stronger. I want want this book to achieve what John is talking about here to his first readers. I want to achieve it here with us. So let's wrap this up. Verse 4. He says this, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is invitation again. He says, I'm writing this, not only these first three verses, but the whole rest of this letter. I am writing this to you guys. We are writing this. He's, he's in partnership with the other elders here. We're writing this so that our joy may be complete. Now, when I first read that, I was like, wait a minute. That's wrong. It should be so that your joy may be complete, right? In fact, later in the letter we see that, so that your joy may be complete. But in this statement, John is saying, my joy is incomplete. I want it to be complete. And so I'm writing this letter so that your fellowship with the Father will be perfect, your fellowship with each other will be perfect, and that will make my joy complete. He's not saying this in a selfish way, like I just want to feel better. He's saying that my role as an elder over these churches, it brings me joy when the people God has given me to, to, to oversee are in right fellowship with God and are in right fellowship with each other. That makes my joy complete. Among other things, he wants these first readers and he wants us to be assured to be confident of our salvation. That vertical relationship. If you are questioning, do you have a vertical relationship with God or are you broken from God by your sin? John wants to address that. He's going to come over and over again back to that as we go through 1 John. It's my hope that each and every one of you through the process of studying 1 John, at the end we will be able to say, I am confident. I am assured in my salvation. I know I belong to Christ. Nothing is going to change that. So he says, I love you guys. I want you to believe the right things. I want you to, to live in the right way. I want you to be confidently assured. All of this... Vertical, horizontal, all of that leads to great joy. That's the first four verses. So, how do we apply this today? How do we apply it to our lives? It's just the introduction of the letter. What could we possibly do to apply it? Well, let me suggest that we give ourselves a checkup. So we'll put that chart up there again: the vertical and the horizontal. And I encourage you to examine yourself, look at your life in each of these two directions. Do you have a cohesive, strong, growing fellowship with God? First of all, are your sins forgiven because you've repented of them and placed all your trust in Christ alone? Have you been born again? If you have not, you have no fellowship with God. Then, if you are in Christ are you walking closely with Christ? Are you growing in Him? Are you spending time in His word? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you prioritizing Him? Or is he an afterthought in life? Is that vertical fellowship with God? Is it a priority for you? Or are other things a priority? And then the horizontal fellowship. Are you united with the other brothers and sisters? In this church, are there broken relationships that need to be mended? Have you contributed to the breaking of those relationships? Or have you just been on the receiving end of it? What do you need to do in order to try to mend that? Who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to confess something to? Who do you need to approach and say, hey, you know, I haven't wanted to talk to you about it, but you you really hurt me in this. And I know you don't even know it, but we... We've got to talk about it, and I need to forgive you because it's breaking our fellowship. Do You need to have a conversation like that. If we would be evaluating ourselves vertically and horizontally and taking steps to grow our fellowship in those two ways, it will transform us as a church. So we're going to take a few minutes, a minute maybe. We're going to evaluate ourselves. Daniel's going to come up. He's going to start playing the first uh, few verses of the next song that we're going to sing, and we're going to silently reflect. What has John said to us this morning? How does it affect our lives? Where does the vertical fellowship with God stand in our lives right now? Where does our horizontal fellowship stand? And what would God have us do about it, even in this next week? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these first four verses. Thank you for all the other passages that we could read so we could get to know John and understand what the situation is. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for his great love for your people, both 2,000 years ago in Ephesus and, and for us here today, how he's loving us even now through these words. Thank you that your love is so much greater than John's love for us. And in your love, you pursue us, you welcome us back when we have strayed away, you forgive us our sins. You expose the, the lies that we have been believing. You, you bring us correction and reproof. You, you don't allow us to just be foolish and self-centered, but you're always pulling us back to yourself. Thank you for that love, that pursuit. Thank you that you want not only fellowship with us vertically, but you want us to have fellowship with each other horizontally. You want us to be united together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a spiritual family where we are loving each other actively, intentionally, deeply loving each other. Lord, as we get ready to sing this closing song and as we reflect on these two aspects of fellowship, would you be doing things in our hearts that we can't do? Would you be revealing to us where we need to make changes, where we need to confess, where we need to go and talk to somebody. Lord, just show us what it is you want us to do to grow these two kinds of fellowship. In Jesus' name.